It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. You know, the more I think about it, the more pissed off I am that the House essentially had to evacuate Washington yesterday because a few whack jobs, conspiracy theorists who had this, you know, bizarre fantasy that on March 4th yesterday, you know, Donald Trump is going to be re-inaugurated. He's going to be returned to power. Uh, and I understand, you know, after what happened on January 6th, need to be cautious. There were intelligence reports. Uh, but, you know, the Capitol was heavily guarded, unlike the last time, by National Guard troops. And it just sort of feels to me that by leaving, by hightailing it out of D.C., unlike the Senate, you know, it's like we let the crazy conspiracy theorists win. You know, uh, we should be able to defend our nation's capital with adequate military and police firepower and not let a bunch of crazy nut jobs intimidate the United States government. That's just how I see it. But on a lighter note, we got the weekend coming up. So I uh, hope you uh, have some good plans. I'm uh, making some changes to Media Buzz for Sunday. Hope you'll check it out, 11 Eastern on Fox. And I want to start by talking about the power of television. And this has to do with the Andrew Cuomo story. So the entire story, which, as I've said many times, has been had been largely overlooked, played down, and in some cases ignored by much of the mainstream media, particularly most of the networks. Uh, it took a dramatic turn when the New York Times, to its credit, uh, its Albany bureau chief, uh, got an interview with Charlotte Bennett. She is the 25-year-old former executive assistant to Governor Cuomo, uh, who said in an extensive interview with the Times that she believed the governor was grooming her, wanted to sleep with her. And this, you know, blew up the whole story. But we hadn't actually seen or heard the voices of any of the three accusers. I mean, the third one's in a different category, the woman who says that um, she was touched at a wedding. She'd never met Cuomo before, and she didn't work for him. Uh, in a way that she thought was inappropriate. But the first accuser, Lindsay Boylan, uh, only did the post in medium. And then you had Charlotte Bennett talking to New York Times. But what aired last night on the CBS Evening News was the first broadcast interview, the first television interview with Charlotte Bennett. And it's not an accident that it went to Nora O'Donnell, the only one of the three broadcast network anchors who is a woman. So it didn't go to David Muir. It didn't go to Lester Holt. It went to Nora O'Donnell, who, by the way, did a terrific job. I've known Nora O'Donnell even before. She was an NBC reporter, and then um, she was on the CBS Morning Show, and then she moved up to become the CBS News anchor. None of these anchors get all that much publicity these days, in my view. I mean, cable news is sort of where all the firepower is in terms of covering big stories. You know, not taking anything away from Holt, or O'Donnell, or Muir, but it's not exactly like the days when it was Dan Rather, Peter Jennings, and Tom Brokaw. I mean, the audiences are still substantial, but nothing like those days when, you know, the broadcast networks were so much more important as players in the news business, in any event. Um, CBS Evening News hadn't even really covered the story much or at all, but nevertheless, Nora O'Donnell had the opportunity, and it's a hard interview to do, because you're talking to somebody who uh, is, was very apparent in watching this. She's 25 years old. She never sought the limelight. She's obviously never been, uh, had this kind of national, even international attention. And suddenly you're going to sit in front of a bunch of TV lights and a camera with an anchor and tell the story about an episode of your life 
that obviously was traumatic. It's a very hard thing to do, and it's a great challenge to, for the interviewer to do it with sensitivity. And I want to read a lot of this. Obviously, you'd go online and watch it if you didn't get a chance to see uh, either the interview itself or any of the clips on CBS. There was a, other portions were played this morning on CBS this morning, um, which I'll talk about in a moment. So here's how it went. And there's something about seeing, um, in this case, a young woman, and, and how she handled the questions. And, you know, you can look, kind of look into her eyes. She was extraordinarily poised, in my view. I thought it was a very powerful interview. But, you know, uh, if she had given a lot of inconsistent answers, halting answers, and people would just say, you know, I don't know if I believe this person, that would have hurt her cause, hurt the case she's trying to make against Andrew Cuomo. So Nora O'Donnell, the piece, the way it was edited, starts off, Governor Cuomo said that he has never propositioned anybody. Do you believe that he was propositioning you? Charlotte Bennett, yes. For what? Sex, she said. Um, so they go back and talk about, remember, this is happening last spring. Cuomo's riding high. He's having the daily press briefings on the pandemic. He's a national figure. He's being hailed by the media as a national hero. Uh, Nora says, do you think all this national attention may have emboldened him? Charlotte, absolutely. I think he felt like he was untouchable in a lot of ways. And here she's describing a conversation after she confided in the New York governor that she was a sexual assault survivor. So he goes, you were raped. You were raped. You were raped and abused and assaulted. In other words, he kept saying these things to her. Uh, and she believed that was for a reason. Uh, so Nora Daniel in, in the voiceover says, you know, on June 5th of last year, uh, Charlotte Bennett was called into Cuomo's office to take dictation, and then he told her to turn off the tape recorder. I don't think we knew that detail. Here's Charlotte Bennett. And then he explained at that point that he is looking for a girlfriend. He is lonely. He's tired. You just finished dictation, Nora said, and the governor is telling you he's lonely and looking for a relationship. Charlotte Bennett. Yes, he asked if I had trouble enjoying being with someone because of my trauma. That seems highly inappropriate, says Nora O'Donnell in an understatement. Yeah, says Charlotte. The governor asked me if I was sensitive to intimacy. That was in his office during the workday. Uh, you've been quoted, says O'Donnell, that he also asked you if you've ever been with an older man. Charlotte Bennett. Yes, he asked me if age difference mattered. He also explained that he was fine with anyone over 22. And how old are you? 25. What are you thinking as he's asking you these questions? I'm sitting at home thinking, yeah, what is she thinking? Ask her that question. Charlotte Bennett, I thought he was trying to sleep with me. The governor is trying to sleep with me, and I'm deeply uncomfortable, and I have to get out of this room as soon as possible. Without explicitly saying it, he implied to me that I was old enough for him, and he was lonely. And then uh, CBS talked about the text messages that Charlotte Bennett said, said at the time to others saying that this had happened, it was creepy, and she was really concerned about it. So that's the kind of corroborating evidence you would be looking for in a trial. I'm not saying there's going to be any criminal proceeding here or even any civil proceeding, but the point is you always look for, is a person saying this now? What did they do then? What real-time evidence do they have? And Charlotte Bennett had the text. Charlotte Bennett, I responded honestly, and when I was even thinking of coming forward, I think that was where I held the most shame, and that, like, I was really uncomfortable. And I'm thinking the same question Nora's asking, why did you feel shame? 
I feel like people put the onus on the woman to shut that conversation down. And by answering, I was somehow engaging in or enabling it when in fact I was just terrified. Nora O'Donnell, people will watch this and say, why didn't you get up and leave? Charlotte, I didn't feel like I have a choice. He's your boss. He's my boss. He's everyone's boss. Uh, Governor Cuomo said in a statement that uh, what he said may have, quote, been in, misinterpreted. Did you misinterpret him? Charlotte, no, I understood him loud and clear. Just didn't go the way he planned. And then what about the apology? It's not an apology. It's not an issue of my feelings. It's an issue of his actions. The fact is, he was sexually harassing me, and he has not apologized for sexually harassing me and can't even use my name. And that is true. When the governor made that big apology at the press conference, he didn't name any of the women. He didn't apologize by name to Lindsey Boylan. He didn't apologize by name to Charlotte Bennett. And I just thought the way she handled these questions, and then there was more, as I said, on the CBS Morning Show, um, and in that, it was just other parts of an interview that, interview that couldn't fit on a 30-minute nightly newscast. Um, Nora O'Donnell said, what would you say to people who think or suggest maybe you're just making this up? And there was a brief pause, and Charlotte Bennett said, why in the world would I make this up? Why would I want to put myself through this? No, this happened to me. And I got to tell you, you know, I've, I've covered a lot of these cases, and there are have been cases, you know, um, the Duke University lacrosse team, the uh, University of Virginia fraternity, where women have made up allegations against men. This did not seem to me to be the case at all. She did not want to be there. She was uncomfortable. She was not grandstanding. Uh, she was highly credible. If you don't think that that's true, I suggest you go watch the interview. Meanwhile, Lindsay Boylan has spoken for the first time to a reporter for Harper's Bazaar. Um, I'll read you some of it and give you my thoughts. She was the first accuser. This is the woman who said she had the governor planted an unwanted kiss on her lips and that uh, he would say inappropriate things like, let's play strip poker while on a state plane. But she never said that he was trying to sleep with her. At least that was not what she said uh, in her medium piece. She said, I spoke out. Uh, because she said she didn't intend to tweet about this, and then she did, and then she felt like she had explained herself. I didn't realize how important it would be to me that I did it in my own voice. The more I started thinking about how I would tell this story, the less I wanted someone else in the media to tell it. Because I questioned that, and I thought it would be more credible if she would answer questions from a reporter. I wanted to be able to say what the experience meant to me so I didn't have to be re-victimized. It was really important for me to f find a way to tell my own story. Well, I have to respect that. She goes on to say, abuse does not confine itself to one area. Someone who abuses their power doesn't just do it toward women or to one community. They do it in some way to every community. That's not who I'm in the fight for. I'm in the fight with people who are really focused on the issues. That's why I'm doing this. Now, there she's referring to the fact that she is running. She's a Democrat. She's running for Manhattan Borough President. And I have raised the question of, did you decide to speak out? Because, you know, she nobody knew who this woman was and would it help her race. I have no idea, by the way, whether she is a strong candidate for that job or not. She goes on to say, it's surprising to people, but I'm an introvert. It's not my favorite thing to be the center of attention. Well, then you probably shouldn't go into politics, and I don't say that with any disrespect. I just want, she, you know, what should happen to Andrew Cuomo? I just want the abuse to stop. I'm really not focused on punishment. I'm focused on accountability. 
Now, the only thing I found fun, uh, odd about this interview is that there were zero questions, and I wonder whether it was an agreement with Harper's Bazaar, because you think you would ask him questions about her actual interactions with Andrew Cuomo. Nothing about the kiss, nothing about strip poker, uh, nothing about the thing. And it's all out there in her medium piece. So why not raise it? Why not press her on a little bit? Again, I'm not saying she's not telling the truth at all. I'm not suggesting that. I'm not implying that. I'm not insinuating that. But it wasn't the most hard-hitting interview by the reporter for Harper's Bazaar. And it did seem to me that if a woman is going to come forward, do the interview and say that, you know, she was uh, kissed and did not want to be kissed by the governor of the state of New York, no, she ought to be asked about that. And so maybe it was an agreement of her to talk about her feelings and why she came forward, but not talk about these incidents themselves. Meanwhile, as if Andrew Cuomo didn't have enough problems, both the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times have uh, stories, detailed stories about the nursing home scandal and, you know, with documents. And you know, when you see it in two different major newspapers, somebody or some set of sources wanted this out. So here is the Times version, as I said. I saw it first, actually, last night in the journal. Top aides to Cuomo uh, were alarmed. A report written by state health officials had just landed and it included a count of how many nursing home residents in New York had died in the pandemic. Let me pause there and say, we know the broad outlines of this story. This happened before the sexual harassment allegations, which is um, there apparently was, there certainly was a withholding of the figures of how many elderly people, nursing home residents in New York State, had died because of COVID-19. Some of this got into a dispute about how many died while they're still in the nursing home and how many died when they were transferred to hospitals. But even Governor Cuomo does not dispute this. And a lot of people think, and this took months to get out, uh, that this was a cover-up because of other evidence that has come out. And also uh, because there was, you know, one of his uh, aides, uh, this conversation was not supposed to become public, but it did, and one of his top aides, said, we were afraid of what the Trump Justice Department would do, how they would use it against us politically if we acknowledged how many uh, New Yorkers actually died who either were or had been in nursing homes from the coronavirus. Because the final figure, when it came out months later, was nearly twice as high, more than 15,000. New Yorkers, people's mothers, fathers, grandmothers, grandfathers, died of COVID-19 who were or had been in nursing homes. And the number that was originally put out was about half of that. So now we learn the number officially, this is last June, this is a long time ago, much earlier than anybody thought. Uh, The number of of people who died in nursing homes from COVID was more than 9,000 at that point. But that was not public. And the governor's most senior aides wanted to keep it that way. They rewrote the report to take it out, according to interviews and documents reviewed by the New York Times. And as I say, the Wall Street Journal has a very similar account. This extraordinary intervention, which came as Quota was starting to write a book on his pandemic achievements, was the earliest act yet known in what critics have called a months-long effort by the governor and his aides to obscure the full scope of nursing home deaths. And the state attorney general is looking into this. Now, you could say, well, this is Cuomo's aides, it's not the governor himself, but in the way that the, this governor runs that state, no, none of his top aides do anything, without, especially on a topic as sensitive as this. And he hasn't made that claim. He has offered other bureaucratic explanations as to why this happened. He's admitted that they left a void, but he hasn't really taken full responsibility for what was clearly a misleading of the public. Even while Cuomo aides initially acknowledged that they were trying to keep this away from the Trump administration for political reasons, Cuomo and his aides, we now know, according to these reports, were actually concealing the numbers months earlier in their own reports, battling with their own state health department. 
So that's uh, the latest on that. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. And just one more thing. I don't mean to go on and on and on about this, but I have a column on foxnews.com today that you might want to look at. And it's about how um, journalists who were very much on the Cuomo bandwagon a year ago are now scrambling to get off. And look, what I say here is whether it's on Twitter or, or anything else, all journalists, including me, make judgments that later on things change, don't look so hot. You know, that happens. And it's especially, you're especially vulnerable to that in this sort of quick trigger environment of social media. So there were some people, uh, and this, I actually am praising a liberal writer named Molly Jong Fast. Uh, she works for the Daily Beast. A year ago, she wrote a piece for Vogue magazine. The title, the headline was, Why We Are Crushing on Andrew Cuomo Right Now. And it was a gushing piece. All of a sudden, I love Governor Cuomo, his soothing Queen's accent, his stories about his dad, Mario, soothing Queen accent. I'm sorry, I'm from Brooklyn. Brooklyn Queens people, they don't have soothing accents. What are you thinking? And she went on to say that, um, um, she went on to say that she just was praising her competent governor slash imaginary boyfriend. Well, now they've broken up. In a piece for the Daily Beast, new one, the headline on Molly Jungfast is, my Cuomo crush turned out to be Stockholm Syndrome. She says that uh, uh, the piece in Vogue may have been my worst take ever. piece was extremely bad and not at all good. She did call him joyless, but she also praised him in ways I just described. So, you know, it happens. And I think the thing to do is to own up to it. This is what I thought then. Uh, this is what I think now. I won't go into the other examples. I think this is a good example of somebody owning up to the fact that, the, you know, obviously she didn't know, I didn't know, we didn't know, the country didn't know everything that was going on at the time. And based on that time, and a lot number of women who said, you know, and I think that, I think Trevor Noah on The Daily Show kind of poked fun at himself for his Cuomo worship and now has a somewhat different view of that. Uh, speaking of the coronavirus, uh, there's a story out that at the San Diego Zoo, some of the gorillas there uh, have gotten the coronavirus. Four, excuse me, four orangutan Four orangutans, <laughs> let me try that again. Excuse me, four orangutans and five bonobos have now received two doses of the coronavirus vaccine made specially for animals. I admit, my reaction to this was, what? Gorillas are getting it, uh, orangutans are getting it, and all the people I know can't get it? What is this? This is an outrage. But this was specially made for animals. It's still, I don't know. I mean, I love animals. I love gorillas. San Diego Zoo is a great place. I love going to the zoos. But I think, I kind of think human beings should be prioritized right now. Just me. Maybe you disagree. So the Senate is now moving ahead on the nearly $2 trillion COVID stimulus package pushed by President Biden. But not much happened yesterday. Why? Because Republican Senator Ron Johnson brought the proceedings to a complete and total halt by insisting, and any senator can do this, and it's a classic delaying tactic, that the Senate clerks read out loud the entire 628-page law, word by word. And this is his way of delaying things to register his objections. Now, that doesn't change any minds. Uh, you can argue against this. Is it too much money? Uh, should, should $350 billion be going to state and local governments? Um, is the money being targeted correctly? I mentioned yesterday Joe Biden seems to be compromising on the income groups that will be eligible for the stimulus checks. Fine. Argue against it. Debate it. What do you gain by delaying this for a day? 
You, it, I mean, I just, it drives me nuts. Obviously, this is going to pass the Senate on a party line vote. 50 Democratic votes and Vice President Kamala Harris breaking the tie. So you slow it down for a day. You look good to your constituents. You show that you did something. I, it just drives me nuts. This is why people hate Washington. And, you know, there have been times when the Democrats have engaged in delaying tactics, too. This is not a, a tactic that is exclusive to the Republican Party. Um, as this uh, time story puts it, under the arcane rules of the Senate, any senator can exploit them. You could have a filibuster. You could have a kind of a semi-filibuster where you, have, you say, okay, I'm not going to stand up on my, uh, my feet all night and talk and read from green eggs and ham. Um, but everyone knows we don't have 60 votes, so we're just going to not take this up. You know, and there's talk that the Democrats should try to get rid of the filibuster, which they may regret when they are again in the minority. So I think the debate has begun today. It, the, the Senate may well pass this today or tomorrow uh, because, you know, they've, they've greased the skids. It's a party line thing. But then it has to go back to the House to reconcile it because Nancy Pelosi and her troops put in the $15 minimum wage. The Senate is not including that. Uh, so it'll probably be some days further. And here's the other thing about the Republicans who are going up against this package, whether it's Ron Johnson's delaying tactics. Mitch McConnell has said, you know, this is way too expensive, and that's fine. You know, it's fine to debate that. There are Democrats who think this bill is way too expensive. But the reason why I don't quite get the Republican opposition, so this is going to pass probably without a single Republican vote in either the House or the Senate. How is that going to look a few months from now? I'm talking politically. And here's the latest poll from the AP. Overall approval rating for President Biden, 60% in this AP survey, approving of his job performance. In this polarized environment where both Donald Trump and uh, Barack Obama had a hard time getting over 50 for much of their respective presidencies, Trump never did get over 50. Obama did at times, but, you know, I can remember his whole second term, he would be down in the low 40s. Sometimes he'd go up to the mid 40s. For Joe Biden, you know, new president to be sure, but in this polarized environment, in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of a struggling economy, 60% approval rating is not a bad accomplishment. But the important figure is this, from the same AP poll, 70% of Americans in this survey are backing Biden's handling of the virus response, and that includes 44% of Republicans. So look at that divide. 44% of Republicans, you know, most of them didn't vote for Joe Biden. Maybe some sliver of them did because they didn't like Donald Trump or whatever. And yet, they've got a president they didn't support in the election, didn't vote for. Maybe they wish Donald Trump had won the election. Maybe some of them believe Donald Trump really did win the election because a lot of previous polls have said that a majority of Republicans agree with the president's unproven, unsubstantiated, stolen election rhetoric. But 44% of those want this coronavirus package. Why? Because they're hurting, because they want schools to get the money, uh, because they want the stimulus checks. And by the way, Donald Trump himself, although he waited until it was too late, until the House and Senate already passed the bills, because he was consumed with fighting the election, wanted $2,000 stimulus checks. $600 passed. Biden is saying $1,400. So if you were a Trump supporter before... You should like what Biden is doing because that's what Trump said he wanted. Uh, I just think, I think it may prove to be a political error for the Republicans to be um, providing zero votes, zero, you know. And you could say, look, the Democrats are the ones who are shoving this down their throats. They didn't never really wanted to compromise. They wanted the full almost $2 trillion. That's fine. 
You can make that case. They're using reconciliation, which is a way of pushing this through. It's a blunt instrument. But if a majority of Americans are uh, vaccinated by the spring, if that money is flowing to households and that helps the economy, if that money is flowing to schools and it helps schools reopen, it could be pretty popular. Now, you never know. Stuff happens. Maybe the vaccines won't get into as many arms. I saw a poll today that the number of Americans willing to take the vaccines. Remember, some people are very reluctant to do this, particularly with the advent of the J&J vaccine, which is a single dose, which a lot of people seem to like, even though the efficacy rate is not quite as high as Pfizer and Moderna, went up from 60% to 69%. So that's good news. If 69% and maybe someone higher into the low 70s, the American public gets vaccinated, certainly by the beginning of the summer, that will be great for the country. It seems like we really could I mean, I don't know the virus is going to go away, but reach enough herd immunity that we can get back to a semblance of normalcy, which would be great. By the way, um, this just stunned me. You know, I've been talking about the people who participated in the Capitol riot. Well, the FBI said yesterday that it arrested a former State Department official on charges related to the Capitol riot. This guy was a mid-level aide. His name is Federico Klein. Federal investigators said in court documents he's seen in videos of the riot resisting officers and assaulting them with a stolen riot shield. He's the first member of the actual Trump administration to face criminal charges in connection with the insurrection at the Capitol back on January 6th. He worked on Trump's 2016 campaign. He started working at State a few days later. Um, He was still employed at State at the time. He had a top-secret security clearance. This is not just some, you know, low-level clerk. Wow. I don't even know how to process that. That is really something. And finally, a little media controversy here involving David Brooks, the longtime conservative columnist for the New York Times. Uh, I know David Brooks. I've always liked his writing. A lot of people think he's not really conservative enough for them. Uh, He's just sort of a moderate conservative. Certainly, he was an anti-Trump conservative, fiercely anti-Trump, and seems to be pretty supportive of Joe Biden. So you may like his writing, you may not not like his writing, but he also appears on the PBS NewsHour, and he's a well-established commentator here uh, within the Beltway. Um, But it's now come out, and BuzzFeed News broke this, that Brooks had a, a second job. He was moonlighting, drawing a salary from the Aspen Institute. That's a think tank, if you're not familiar with it on an initiative called Weave, which is very much, just very much fits the kind of stuff that, that Brooks writes about. Uh, a Weave is an initiative that seeks to combat social isolation and build community relationships. Okay, that's fine. Uh, but the project is funded in part by Facebook as one of the largest donors, including the father of Jeff Bezos, who owns the Washington Post. Now, Times readers know that David Brooks was part of this Weave initiative because he's written about it repeatedly in his column. But according to this write-up in the Washington Post, the problem, I mean, here, here's an example from the book's column. This is last, uh, 2019, excuse me. Um, problem of social isolation is being solved by people around the country at the local level who are building community and weaving the social fabric. But there's one thing that David Brooks did not tell his readers, a couple of things, and this is really, I have to be critical of this. He didn't tell them that he was working for this project that Facebook was funding with a $250,000 grant and he was getting a salary. So he didn't disclose that. Apparently he told his bosses, at least his bosses at the time, but not the new uh, opinion editors at the Times. And the fact is, look, if David Brooks wants to say in his column, look, I love this initiative. It's funded partially by Facebook. I praise Facebook. I praise this weave. And by the way, you know, 
I work for this place, or at least for one of the projects, and I'm getting paid for it. And then people can decide for themselves. Do they discount that because he is getting a financial benefit or not? But not to disclose it to readers, I think, was misleading. And a mistake on David Brooks's part. Uh, he did not comment from this Washington Post story. Uh, the Times just said it's looking into it, so they don't seem terribly upset about it. The management of the New York Times or the spokesperson who was reached uh, by the Post. Uh, and I guess we'll leave it there. I actually have a lot more to say, but you know what? You have other things to do. Weekend coming up. Have a really good weekend. I hope you'll catch Media Buzz, as I said at the top, for, uh, Sunday morning, 11 Eastern. I've got some more work to do on that today. Uh, and you can always subscribe. Apple iTunes. Let's see, I'm even running out of the list here. Amazon Music, Spotify, Google Podcasts. We'll see you back here on Monday with more Buzzmeter. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, in these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.